So my two years, my two short years living in, my, in Montana have taught me, they've taught me that when summer rolls around, you better have a plan to make the most of it. And I remember as a kid, I remember as a kid during our family vacations in northern Michigan, making a list. I was that kind of kid. I would make a list of the things I had to do on our last day. And I wanted to make the most of the time that I've had left. You know, it's when we feel that time squeeze, when we sense that time is running out, it's then that our priorities are revealed. And so friends, with the time that remains in your life, the time that remains in your life, the question is, how are you going to live? With the, t- with the time that remains, what are you going to prioritize? What's going to, what's going to receive your time, your energy? What's gonna make it onto your list? And that's what our passage this morning tackles. Peter's laying out for us, he's giving us a roadmap for what life looks like when a person becomes a Christian. He's answering, what does life look like after that great change? And with the time that remains in the flesh, however many days that is, Peter says to these Christians, you no longer, you no longer live for human passions, but you live for the will of God. And what we're going to see is our passage flesh that statement out. As Peter shows us, as we spend the time that remains here, as we spend the time that remains here living for the will of God, we will find ourselves on the outs, we'll take up new habits, and we'll pursue a new ambition. We'll find ourselves on the outs, we'll take up new habits, and we'll pursue a new ambition. So if you have your Bible with you, we're, gonna, we're continuing in our study of 1 Peter. We're in chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. So hear now God's word. Since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand, Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling, as each has received a gift. Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Friends, the grass withers and the flower fades, 
but the word of our God endures forever. So Peter makes, Peter makes a bold, maybe a somewhat confusing statement right there in verse one when he says, whoever has suffered in the flesh, he says, has ceased from sin. So the question is, who opted out of the prayer of confession earlier? Right, Peter's not suggesting that Christians are through sinning in any kind of definitive sense in this life. That's not it. But when you become a Christian, Peter knows a new mentality, a new attitude, a new relationship to sin forms. And that, that, that different attitude, that mentality towards sin is defined by Christ. Peter says we are to arm ourselves with whose mindset? We are to arm ourselves with Christ's mindset. And as we've seen in this letter again and again, Christ's mindset, you could say his resolve toward sin was to suffer rather than to sin. And so he embraced suffering again and again if that's what it costs to continue doing God's will. So Christ never said, you know, I'll follow God's will as long as the road is smooth as long as there's no pushback, as long as people are on my side, as long as there's no cross. He had an unwavering commitment to continue in God's will. And in a fallen world, an unwavering commitment to continue to persist in God's will means that your life, yes, will be full of suffering and hardship and pushback. And so let's put the puzzle pieces together here. If you suffer, if you suffer abuse and ridicule for doing God's will as Christ did in the flesh, that's evidence, Peter's saying. That's the evidence that you've taken on the mindset of Christ. He says that's proof that in this life you are sharing in Christ's attitude, that it is better, that it is better to suffer than to sin. And that resolve, right, arming ourselves with Christ's mindset is how we find ourselves on the outs. See, when these people became Christians and they stopped living in sensuality and passions and drunkenness and all of those things, it was because of this new mindset, right? These were things, the list of sins in verse 3 they seem shocking to us, things that are now reserved for you know, seedy, dark corners away from the public eye. But these were things that you'd find in family, religious celebrations, civic holidays. They were woven into the culture. They were just part of life. They were expected. They were encouraged. They were widespread. And so when they stopped... When they pulled back from participating in these things, you can see where they were. They were on the outs with the rest of their culture. They were on the outs with their neighbors and their friends. They weren't joining them, themselves in these things anymore. And so people were, were surprised. But they weren't just surprised. That surprise ended up becoming maligning. They were slandered. They were cursed. All because their new mindset, this new mindset took priority over their culture. It took priority over traditions. It took priority over relationships with family and friends. 
It took priority over what was deemed acceptable by everyone else. You see, in this letter, as we worked through this letter, we never hear Peter say that these Christians, when you become a Christian, that all of a sudden you must leave your culture, that you must abandon your families, that you must leave your job. If that were the case, if becoming a Christian were now about isolating yourself, removing yourself from where you lived, your surroundings, if that were the case, Peter would never have had to tell them, as we read a few weeks ago, to honor the emperor. He would never have had to tell wives to remain married to non-believing husbands. But what he does say, as we see here, is that there are things in the culture. They could be long-standing traditions. They could be things that no one else takes issue with, things that are now in vogue and praised, that as Christians you can't participate in, when those things are contrary to God's revealed will in his word. And so, yes, you can honor the emperor, but your resolve your mindset must be to suffer, even die, rather than worship the emperor. A wife can still honor and respect her non-believing husband, but her resolve, her commitment, must be to never worship his pagan gods. She, can, she can't join him in his lawless idolatry. And so friends, is your resolve is your resolve to be done with sin greater than your desire to not be maligned? Right? Does your resolve to be done with sin hold up? Does it hold up when faced with the possibility of finding yourself on the outs with coworkers, with friends, with family members? And if not, the opinions of other people are too important to you, right? Those opinions and not God are what control you and they are ultimately what you're living for, right? If there are certain behaviors and practices that you know that don't square with God's will that you aren't giving up because you don't want to pay that social cost, because of the potential backlash from friends, maybe even close, close family members, the truth is, you're living in the fear of man. And if that's the case, the good news is that Jesus Christ is stronger than that fear. He knows what it's like to be tempted. He's been maligned. He's suffered. He's been cursed for doing God's will. If there is any man who found himself on the outs, it was Jesus Christ, totally abandoned under all that pressure, under all of those attacks, and yet Christ didn't sin. He didn't cave. And because Christ cares for us, it is Christ who is willing to give to us and share with us his mindset. It is Christ who arms us with his way of thinking. It's Christ who shows us what sin truly deserves, what it's really going to cost us in the end. And so when you've failed, when you've cowered before other people, 
when you've fallen back into sinful practices and found yourself in that rut, when you've sinned alongside friends. Christ is gracious to those who come to him in faith, acknowledging the weakness of their resolve. That we come to a savior who knows that in many times, in many situations, we have chosen to sin rather than suffer. And so friends, what break with sin are you not making? And maybe whose opinion in your life is keeping you from putting away and being done with a certain sin? Right? Christ welcomes you in your weakness, in your sinful fears and worries. He may work patiently, but Christ does cast away all the wrong fears we have, and he gives us a true freedom, a freedom from being enslaved to the opinions of other people, a freedom from being afraid of what others might do to our reputation, that in Christ we get this freedom to live for what pleases God. And so with the time that remains in this world, in this day, we need to come to terms with being on the outs. Our priority is not to gain popularity. It's not to avoid scorn. It's not to gain the favor of all people. Christ did none of those things. He lost popularity. He took scorn. He fell out of favor with all sorts of people, but he lived a blameless life the only life ever perfectly acceptable to God. So our mindset, our mindset is to be done, to make every effort to be done with the sins that Christ came to save us from, the sins that he has already atoned for. So with the time that remains, there are things that we must give up, pull back from, But also with the time that remains, we also need to take up new things. There are new habits that we must ingrain. And that's what we see beginning in verse 7. With the time that remains, we must devote ourselves to these things. You notice in verse 7, this list begins with being self-controlled, sober-minded, And all the sins listed back in verse 3. If you think, what's the thread that holds them all together? All of those things have to do with excess, being unconstrained, drunkenness, drinking parties, orgies. They're all about throwing off inhibitions, getting rid of any restraints, and just indulging. And Peter says here, now that you've become a Christian, be alert, be clear-headed. You notice what happens when we eat too much or when uh, when we watch too much TV, when we scroll Maybe it just, uh, just too long on social media. Right? It leaves you in a daze. Right? It leaves you not feeling as quick. You're sluggish. And when you're not quick, you're sluggish. Your prayer life suffers. Right? The reason for being self-controlled and sober-minded, Peter says, is to pray more. And do you remember a few weeks ago the reason 
Peter gave to husbands for living with their wives in an understanding way, honoring them as a weaker vessel. It is not so that they don't catch flack when they fish too much. The reason, he says, that you live in this way is so that your prayers may not be hindered. So you can give yourself to prayer. So Peter's saying both in that verse and here, he's reminding us, don't get distracted from your prayers. He's he's saying, don't introduce something into your life that's going to diminish and take away from your prayer life. You know, in his book, Tim Keller, in his book on prayer, Tim Keller asks the reader, he says, imagine being diagnosed with a lethal condition. And the only way, the only way to stay alive is to take a pill every night before going to sleep. And he asks, would you miss a night? Would you forget to take, a, the, would you forget to take the pill? See, that's prayer. It's that vital. The health of our faith, the strength of our witness, our growth in holiness, they all depend on prayer. So friends, obviously, if there are sins keeping you from praying that are spoiling your prayer life, you must go at those sins and get rid of them. But it's also the case that when, when a good thing a thing that's not inherently sinful, when that good thing becomes excessive, when it begins dominating our time, when it distracts us from things like prayer and worship and fellowship with other believers, change needs to happen. Right? Prayer, is too, prayer is too vital. It's so foundational because it's out of a committed, it's out of this disciplined prayer life that flow these other things in this list, love and hospitality and serving one another. Peter says we're to love one another, how? Earnestly. And that word there, earnestly, it literally means, the idea is that you're stretching yourself. And that's what love requires. It requires you to move beyond your comfort zone. It requires you to take on new things, new challenges, And whenever you're taking on new things, new challenges, and you're stretching yourself out, all of that puts tension and strain on your life. But it's in that that love covers a multitude of sins. So Peter's not saying that love ever affirms sin. Instead, love stretches you in such a way, it stretches you in such a way that you move toward what's broken. Love is never a bypass. It never goes around problems. It doesn't dodge people. Love doesn't avoid the hard conversation. Love says, spend yourself on helping repair what's been damaged by sin. And whenever you seek to repair something, to put something back together, it causes strain. It exerts new pressure on your life. And so you can see how much safer and easier life is without this kind of love. It's why Lewis said that to love at all is to be vulnerable. He said, love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly be broken. 
says, if you want to make sure of keeping your heart intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal, he says. To love, as Peter's saying here, to love in the way that we're supposed to love is to make yourself vulnerable. It's to make your money vulnerable. It's to make your comfort vulnerable. It's to make your plans vulnerable. It is literally to put your life on the line for another person. If you've ever made a commitment to stretch more, that's when you find out that you aren't very flexible. And it's easy to give up, isn't it? To keep stretching our lives out for one another isn't easy because we aren't flexible people by nature. And it's only the gospel that makes us limber because the gospel says that in love, God moved towards us. The gospel says that Christ took the strain, that he expended himself to restore us that he became poor to enrich us, that he came to us in all of our brokenness and all of our need to be repaired and put back together. He came to us without us asking to heal that relationship that we broke with him by our sin. Friends, we know that relationships, even relationships in the church, they undergo stress, they're tested, they go through challenges. That's why love is so crucial. That's why the Bible says that love is what binds everything together because love persists in seeking to make things right, to make things whole, to make things as God intended them to be. And so you can see how this love flows seamlessly into showing hospitality. Really, it's one of the ways that we stretch ourselves out for one another. We make room for one another by inviting people into our lives fully. That's hospitality, when we bring others in. And if you think about the context here, when, when some of these people became Christians, where do you think the maligning came from? It probably came from their own families. And so becoming a Christian very easily cost them their homes. Right? Becoming a Christian put them on the outs from what they had known their entire lives. But in the church, but in the church, they gained a new family. They gained new brothers and sisters and mothers. But I love that qualifier. We show hospitality how without grumbling. See, Peter isn't being Pollyannish because inviting people into your life, welcoming them with all of their problems and needs is disruptive. And that's why being a church to call home, as we say, why it's very hard. And we don't always get it right because we are people who grumble. We are people who complain. We are people who do not like our plans being changed, our lives being unsettled. But we remember that around Christ's table are people like us who've complained, people who are difficult, people who are full of needs, 
And yet when Christ looks around his table, he is glad that we are there. So friends, rejoice in the people that Christ has put into your lives, the people that he's putting into your path, and take advantage of the opportunities to show hospitality, to bring people in. And it's in this new context, when, when we are welcoming one another into our lives, that we serve one another. In the previous life of these Christians, when they were living in and doing all of the things listed in verse 3, life for them, it was all about consuming. It was all geared toward satisfying their flesh, indulging in their desires, getting what they could from other people. But when God's grace, when God's grace comes into your life, what happens? It causes you to look at people differently. You speak and serve for the benefit of other people. You speak on behalf of God. You serve in God's strength. You stop asking, what is it that this person can give me? How can this person fulfill me? How might this person raise my status? Instead, you start asking, I wonder what gifts. What gifts do I have that will bless other people? What strengths, what, what status do I have that can be used to strengthen others and raise them up? We start asking, how can I spend myself to enrich others? And so friends, with the time that remains, we take up these new habits and we take them up for one another. But most importantly, with the time that remains, we, we pursue this new ambition. You know, one of the things that can really stand in your way, one, one thing that can hold you back from this total commitment to live for God's will is a concern for your name. You see, if you're overly protective of your reputation, if you're, if you're always defensive about your name, about how people think of you, what is said, if you're bent on seeing your named praise, if that's your ambition... If that's your goal, if that's the thing that you live for, being maligned, being slandered, being cursed, having your reputation ruined is devastating. It's the one thing that can crush your dreams. And so you've got to have a better ambition than seeing your name praised. And so with the time that remains, our ambition is to see that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. In other words, be done trying to ensure your name gets the praise. Be done. You can be done stressing about your reputation. And see to it that in your life, you are about Jesus Christ getting the spotlight. And so how do you do that? How do you go from always trying to get your name in the bright lights to living for Jesus' name? Well, when Jesus came to earth, do you remember what Gabriel told Mary about his name? Mary was told that her son would be called the son of the most high God. You may love your name, but your name is not greater than that. He would be called the son of the most high. And so all through his life, with that name, 
People should have been revering that name. They should have been praising that name. They should have been doing everything to exalt that name. But at the end of his life, when Jesus took his final breath on the, on the cross, he was surrounded by people who weren't lifting up his name, but he was being maligned. He was being cursed, he was being slandered. You see, the Son of God, the Son of the Most High, had his good, spotless reputation tarnished. And he did it. He took the slander to raise our names up, to give us what no, to give us what no person could ever give us, a true and lasting glory. You see, when you become a Christian, whose name do you get? You get the name of Christ bestowed on you, and that means you get all of his righteousness, you get all of his obedience, you get his record. It's all yours. Because he came to save people who had lived for too long in the passions of their own flesh living for their desires and living for their own name. So friends, don't be surprised when you're maligned. Don't be surprised when you're cursed. Don't be surprised when you find yourselves on the outs with the culture. Take comfort in that when Christ looks at his bride, when he looks at you, he says, you are mine and you will be mine forever and ever. So live for me. Let us pray. Lord God, we pray that in your power and in your mercy, you would seal these truths in our heart. Lord, we need them for all that lies ahead of us, to draw near to you, to find our rest, our comfort, our identity in you. We ask in your name, amen.